0: I encourage every business owner listening to watching this podcast to consider stapling themselves to the very next order that comes in from a customer. Staple yourself to that order, follow it throughout the organization until the product is shipped, the service is
1: delivered. How many hands are you going to shake? This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and this is a deep dive continuation with Sean Hutchinson, CEO, partner with SVA, Value Accelerators, and Alistair Stewart the manufacturing practice leader also with SBA value accelerators. And this continuation of the podcast is where we're going to dig deeper and talk about productivity acceleration. Guys, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for taking the time.
0: Bob, Continue. thanks. great to be with you. All right, let's go. But let's talk a little bit about what productivity acceleration is, just so we're all uh, got a common base. So we can think about productivity as the effectiveness of productive effort, right and it's measured. By the rate of output per unit. What does accelerating mean? That means making it happen quicker. So that's just our baseline, right? What's productivity? What does acceleration mean? Well, the reason all owners are in business should be primarily to create value for themselves. And the way they create value for themselves is by creating value for customers. Now, our owners who are going to staple themselves to the orders that they're getting, right? The next customer order Every time they shake somebody's hand, every time they meet somebody, every time they wait for somebody, every time they wait for something, every time something has to go back to be redone, checked, all those kinds of activities that an order experiences are what we call non-value add. And if you start to look at the operations of a typical company, and most owners are going to be, I imagine, shocked if they're hearing this for the first time, about 95% Of all activities in your average company, your average organization, do not create customer value. But what is customer value? Well, customer value has to pass a classic three-part test. An activity to be creating customer value has to be done right the first time, has to change the form, fit, or function if it's a tangible product, or has to deliver a service that otherwise wouldn't happen, or it has to convert data into information or knowledge, but changing the form, fit, or function of something. And the last and best of the three parts of the acid test is the customer must be willing to pay for it. So imagine if a hypothetical owner case stapling him or herself to an order, that halfway through, that order has to go back to the preceding step because we are missing some information. We're not exactly sure if the customer wanted it in blue or in black. So now we go back and we go back and we find that the sales guy just wrote down B in the color, right? In the color box. Well, that was all non-value add activity, right? But we're going to break that out as a line item on the invoice to the customer, checking what color you really ordered. You told us loud and clear what color you ordered. We just didn't understand, didn't write it down, didn't record it. And we break that out, right? (laughs) Checking the actual color requirement of the customer after they already told us. 20 minutes. And we'll just bill you 500 bucks for doing that. Well, no customer is going to pay that, right? But all these little activities that are pervasive in every organization, death by a thousand cuts, and productivity is gained, productivity is accelerated by understanding non-value-added activities and stopping doing them. That frees up a tremendous quantity of resources, time, cash physical space to focus on delivering customer value. Now, when we think about the activities that don't change the form, fit, or function of the product, aren't done right the first time, and the customer would be unwilling to pay for if he or she saw them as a separate line item on the invoice, right? as we think about all the roughly 95% of time that's dedicated to non-value-add activities, we can see that those non-value-add activities can be classified into about Eight types of activities. And I'll just run through them in really short order. There's a great acronym that people can use to remember them. The acronym is downtime, D-O-W-N-T-I-M-E. And I'll go through each of the classic eight wastes. First is defects, right? Making something that has to be either scrapped or reworked. And of course, the worst kind of defect is one that makes it to the customer. But even if that defect is detected internally and something is either scrapped or reworked, right, that's still a waste. And don't just confine our thinking to tangible products. right? There are many, many information defects that occur throughout many, many, many organizations. The next kind of defect is overproduction. We make stuff that hasn't been ordered. And what do we do with that stuff that hasn't been ordered? Sits on a shelf somewhere, right? So now we've got to have a shelf for it to sit on. Oh, we have to ensure the space that the shelf is in. We have to ensure the stuff that's on the shelf. And the stuff that's on the shelf, that overproduction, that is working capital, not available for productive use. The next of the wastes, W, that's waiting, right? If we've overproduced and something is hanging around, well, it's waiting. Or if I'm downstream from Sean, and uh, Sean is taking longer than anticipated to complete his activity, and I'm next in line, what am I doing? I'm waiting for the product. That Sean is currently working on. The next of the wastes, and I believe, as do most people studied and use this approach, is the worst of all the wastes. This is non utilized talent. If we harness creative and physical capabilities of everybody on our team, we'll be starting to accelerate productivity. But just because you're the newest hire, in customer service with six months' work experience out of college doesn't mean you don't have a great, sharp, curious mind. The next of the waste is transportation, moving stuff around. Right? We can think of this classically in a manufacturing facility, but we also can think of it in terms of email, right? Shuttling documents back and forth. Very corrosive, right? Because we just don't think about the time it takes to move information, take a look at it, get it back. Well, why are you moving that information around? In a second opinion,
2: you're asking somebody to check something. So there's an interesting example of that that we all get frustrated by, which is the document gets emailed to eight people, right? And there's no clear instruction about who's supposed to review it and who's supposed to get back with comments on it. When really it probably could have gone to one person without the copies to the other seven. That person reviews it, comments on it, And then there's the question of, did it really have to happen that way? If it had been done right the first time, nobody would have had to review it. That's right, Sean. And when we Mm -hmm. come on to this concept
0: of value stream mapping, right, we'll identify who needs to get something downstream and who doesn't. But you're, you're you're absolutely right. The next of the wastes, inventory, right? If we have inventory hanging around, that is working capital that is unavailable for other productive uses, for example, being applied to innovation. The next of the wastes, the concept of motion. This comes more from the manufacturing perspective, but on the shop floor, right? Moving your hands, your body, leans to all kinds of ergonomic challenges. Maybe not as relevant in the virtual world, the virtual economy, certainly has a role as a waste in a service industry where there's a physical delivery of something. And then the final is excess processing, right? painting the inside of a housing. right? Nobody's looking at the inside of that housing. Now, that's an example from the physical, tangible world, but we can also think of excessive processing in the design phase of anything. Am I doing more than is needed for the customer? And that might mean I really don't understand customer requirements. But anyway, eight classic wastes of business activity that contribute to 95% of the hours So imagine if my boss is looking for me to put in 40 solids every week. If I'm in a typical company, I'm spending 38 of those 40 solids on non-value-add activity. That is a stunning that should get the attention of every business owner. Just stop doing the non-value-add activities, which allows us to focus on value-add activities, and productivity goes through the roof. Now how do we understand these wastes? How do we see them? Well, an easy way of learning to see the classic wastes is through a technique known as value stream mapping, laying out in sequential order a picture that shows the discrete activities or operations that go on and some data to characterize each operation. What is the standard cycle time for an operation? And you could think of this in terms of maybe if you're in the banking sector, right? Originating a loan. Mm-hmm. It's processing, processing a mortgage. Processing a mortgage.
1: Yeah.
0: It doesn't have to be just the, the physical world. <clears throat> we, we lay out this sequence of activities and we characterize each operation that's involved. What's the standard cycle time? How many people does it take to do it? If there's some piece of equipment, a database A computer, a machine, a truck, right? Anything that we need to do the work. How available is a machine? Is there setup that needs to be done? So if I'm doing a step in processing a mortgage, I probably have to go and get some kind of credit information. What does it take to have all the available pieces of data so that I can now submit that credit application, right? And Lord forbid, we might be missing one critical piece of information, which means we have to go back. Right, and all the delays and, and so on that are involved in This idea of value stream helps us identify how value flows through an organization from the receipt of an order to the shipment or delivery of the service or product. And when we can visually see it, now we can start asking ourselves, wow, is that activity really needed? Is it adding any value? Where are these eight wastes? And what can we do, most importantly, what can we do to get rid of them. And as we think about eliminating unnecessary activities and reducing or mitigating wastes in other activities, we're accelerating throughput. And Henry Ford in 1926 took the assembly time for a vehicle <clears throat> 13 hours to two and a half hours. Now, I imagine if we said to somebody today, something that takes you 13 hours to do, we can get it down to about two and a half hours by eliminating waste. People might be skeptical. There's a track record for decades of applying these classic tools, these classic methods to eliminate waste and free up so much capacity to create customer value. When you create more customer value more quickly, you've got a stronger competitive advantage and you're more profitable. We can also think about throughput as being revenue, right? If you believe in Dr. Goldratt's uh, theory of constraints approach to running a business, right? There are only three metrics that Dr. Goldrat suggests we solve for, and they're throughput, inventory, and operating expense. And we're not going to get into the weeds on those today. But the idea of stop doing non-value-added activities in order to accelerate throughput is just a
2: basic of being a highly effective business manager. I'll make a few comments here. So I saw you do a value stream mapping exercise once that I thought was really interesting. And I think the visual aspect of this is just crucial for people to be able to see it. So what Alistair did, which I think was just brilliant in its simplicity, we had a management team in the room and we drew six lines, I think it was on a whiteboard. Those lines, the space in between them represented what were called swim lanes. And those swim lanes represented either a department in the company or a functional area of the company. And for each step along the way, we put a sticky up there and we wrote what the step was, right? Someone touched it or something was happening in the company. And we put that sticky in one of the swim lanes, right? Well, that was happening in the operations area. That was happening in the finance area, so on and so forth. And so you could see the different sort of activities that were happening. And what I found fascinating about it, that exercise besides just the work that went into it because people were sort of discovering things as they went on. Oh, I forgot. Yeah. That person touches that too. We've got two people that are kind of touching that go back to the example of stapling a customer order to your back and walking through the organization. That was what was happening. But there was a crucial question. Who touches it first? Who touches it first when it comes in, who's the person that receives it? And I watched that group struggle probably for 30 to 45 minutes to just identify step one. Because everybody kept saying, yeah, I think that's where it starts. And then somebody else would say, no, there's a step before that. And so we put up another sticky note, right? Once you kind of got them up on the board, you're looking at it, and there are 70 steps, all of them representing what we'll say. It's a pretty crowded board. And then we went back and we started looking at it and said, is that really necessary? No, it's not. Rip it off the board, right? Rip it off the board. Rip it off the board. Until eventually, the happy path, In that particular process emerges from first step to last step. You go from 50 stickers on the board, 50 on the board to maybe, I don't know, less. Now, what Alistair was saying is you can make a big jump just by eliminating 10 or 15% because everything that happens when you free up those unnecessary steps really converts to not just financial performance of the organization, But the line on the organization's balance sheet that's always at the top, which says cash on hand, right? And if that's bothering an owner, like, hmm, seems like we don't have enough cash on hand ever, we're doing better, but my cash is just burning up here, right? I'm growing, but my cash is disappearing. What's happening? You can point right back to, I think you can point right back to gaps in productivity, gaps in throughput, constrictions on throughput. If you look at it visually, you're going to be able to begin to find those things. Now, that was one process. Here's the intimidating part, I think, of value stream mapping. That particular exercise was about an invoice coming in the company and an invoice getting out of the company, right? It was kind of like something came in, something, we had to pay an invoice that came into our company. How long is that taking us? Well, it was taking a long time. Really, once an invoice is in the company, there are probably only three or four steps until somebody writes a check. So I found that to be fascinating to watch it happen in real time and the struggles, the real struggles. Now you think about that and you magnify it out to, well, our company probably has, I don't know, a hundred crucial processes that are similar, maybe more. We need to map every single one of those and look for gains in productivity. Now this is, in my opinion, in our value accelerator, when we get to productivity acceleration, in that sprint of productivity acceleration, And it's consistent with what we asked our clients to do in all of our sprints. Focus on, put all of your energies into that particular piece of value acceleration for the next 90 days. Let's not think about other stuff. We've already done the prep for it. We have a very clear vision of the company of the future because that's the sprint that precedes productivity acceleration. And the question is why? Why would you do that? Well, really good reason. The company of the future is going to allow you to get clear on where you want to plant your flag in the future, right? Strategy... Where are we going? How are we going to get there? Well, if you don't know where you're going, you're going to wander around forever, and you're probably not going to get anywhere. So now we have clarity on where we want to go. Let's imagine that there's productivity problems on the shop floor in the manufacturing. We pick, we can see that there's productivity problems in one production line for one product that the company is making. So the company allocates a significant amount of money and sends a team out on the floor to improve that product, right? To improve that piece of their throughput. And then after that, they do their strategy work, their company of the future work. And in that work, they get clarity on the fact that, hey, that product didn't do anything for us. It's not producing value for the company. It's taking a lot of capital up. And if we trace it all the way through, really, we're getting no shareholder value out of it. So we're going to starve that, and we're going to redirect that tied up capital to another higher value activity. So somebody walks out from the management and says to the shop floor, take that line down. We're not doing it anymore. And the person says, we just spent half a million dollars improving the throughput for that product. Do you think you could have figured out before we did that, that we really didn't need to? And we could have put that half a million dollars over here into something of higher value. It's really important for the clarity piece on the strategy side to proceed the productivity side. Otherwise, you're funding things that you're probably not going to get any value of. You're absolutely
0: right. These two critical questions, where are we going and how are we going to get there? And cascading down through the organization, the answers to those questions and making sure that everybody on the shop floor is aligned. Yeah. Now, once we understand where we're going and what we should do to get there, right, we start with what could we do to, right? What should we do? What will we do? What are we going to do in the next 30 days? A systems thinkable, which every business owner should be, will understand that at any point in time, there is always one ultimate choke on throughput. There is always one operation which is choking throughput in the company. Now, depending on your product or service mix, market demand, seasonality, a whole bunch of things, it is not unlikely that that constraint will move around within the organization. However, understanding where the constraint is, And removing activities that are non-value-add, mitigating wastes in that constraining operation will cause the constraint to move elsewhere. We improve performance. We get more productivity in that constraint, more throughput, more cash flow, and the constraint moves. Now, with a relentless focus on understanding where the constraint is, we can have a disciplined approach. To accelerating productivity. But when at a business operations level, we don't have a relentless focus on that, we're just sub optimizing. Also, really important this concept of productivity acceleration it's really important to have everybody in the organization aware of what we're doing to accelerate productivity. We can make tremendous gains, let's say in the shop floor, right, to get more productivity. Unless we have orders to take advantage of the capacity that we have liberated by eliminating activities, reducing non-value add activities, then there's no more cash flow to accelerate. So it's absolutely vital that, for example, the sales and marketing organisation are part of the productivity accelerating conversation. If sales now sell our increased capacity better. We enter a virtuous cycle of value creation. I'll just use a manufacturing example. It's true in service. It can be true in retail. Is true in distribution. So imagine that we and our competitors have trained our customers, have trained the market to accept a seven-week lead time for our products, and we look within our operations from beginning to end, and we identify where the choke throughput is, and we recover or add capacity to the choke, which causes the choke to move somewhere else. And a relentless focus on this brings our lead time down from seven weeks to five weeks. Well, inherently, our unit cost is lower. And generally speaking, customers will pay a premium for a shorter lead time. Now, if we don't have sales and marketing at the conversation about the productivity gains, we may not have anywhere to go. But if sales and marketing are with us, a couple of things are going to happen. We're going to communicate our greater value to the market by having a five-week lead time compared to everybody else's seven-week lead time. And we will adjust prices to reflect that incremental value. Now we have this virtuous margin expansion going on where we're charging more and realizing a higher price. And the unit cost is lower because it's taking us less. And we're making more of them because of the productivity gains that we realized. We can only do that with a relentless focus on understanding where the constraining operation is and recovering or adding capacity to it and continuing to rinse and repeat. that.
2: I think that's an important part about you have to have the demand in some ways to justify the investment in productivity and bringing in sales and marketing and also market intelligence, competitive intelligence, What kind of data are you getting that would essentially alter the idea that you are going to get more into your channel, into your pipe, and being able to expand the size of the throughput is absolutely necessary in order to take that demand and convert it into cash in a reasonable amount of time. That's really what we're talking about. And anytime you can open up those choke points, if you think of it literally as a pipe, right? You can only push so much through. So if you've got a narrow pipe, you're going to have to figure out a way to make it bigger. Now, let's go back to Henry Ford for a minute. So Henry Ford, my understanding of Henry Ford is he didn't just decide one day that he wanted to make cars in a shorter period of time. That's a neat idea. He had to, this goes to necessity is the mother of invention in a sense. He either knew or was in the middle of a real, knew that it was coming or was in the middle of a real problem which was a lot of people in the United States wanted that car. And he couldn't make it fast enough if it was at 13 hours. There was no way that he could meet the demand. Now, what did that do? One, if he didn't figure out how to do it, he was opening the door for a competitor to figure it out themselves and step into the gap. So he didn't want to provide any toe-in-the-door room for one of his competitors to make it faster and meet the demand that had emerged that he had created. In a way, by manufacturing this sort of first or early stage automobile, everybody wanted a car. As many people wanted a car as they could get. Well, the other people were seeing that. That was no secret. So they're going to go start car companies and they're going to start making a better car. So how does he keep them at bay? He figures out how to make a car faster. And he challenges them to catch up with Ford. A hard thing to do. This is the legend, right? This is what made that situation legendary. So creating demand, he did it really well on the front end. He was innovative. He knew how what to tie his cash up in. And then he reacted, probably proactively in some ways, to, I'm going to see a huge demand for this vehicle in the United States. i better figure out how to make it better. That's right, Sean. And you, you raised the key, key phrase, necessity is the mother of invention.
0: At the end of the Second World War, Japan's industrial capacity and capability had been tremendously impaired. And in in the United States, all the GIs came back and we had a couple of decades of tremendous gains in prosperity. And a blue collar working class guy could have a great life, right? Provide very, very well for him and his family. And as they were rebuilding, right? Necessity was the mother of their invention. And when we saw the gas crisis hit in 1973 was when we started to see small, fuel-efficient motor vehicles show up, and Detroit was really unable to respond, in part because of worker management dynamics through the unions. And a little later, we started to see small yellow boxes, a little bit bigger than a a carton of cigarettes, and they were called the Sony Walkman, right? Mm -hmm. And and if Mm -hmm. you think about an economy that we devastated and then was able to come and out-compete the U.S. auto industry, The U.S. consumer electronics industry, right, create classes of new products through innovation. And those economic gains, that competitive advantage that the Japanese industrial sector realized came about in significant part through a tremendous focus on productivity acceleration. They learned very well from Henry Ford. And in the developed economies, we kind of become complacent. And complacency, as we know, is business death you're dying. You just don't know it. So again, a relentless focus on a systems approach to understanding the constraint. Now, I do want to touch on one really important point about productivity accelerating that many organizations fail to appreciate and take advantage of. A great strategy with a poor culture is likely to lead to failure. An okay strategy with a great culture will beat it, generally speaking. And productivity acceleration is a great way to engage the workforce, even at the most fundamental level around the three WIFMs. So a or What's-In-It-For-Me. Most people work for employment security. They would like a quicker, bigger increase in base pay, and they would like a quicker, likelier increase in a bonus. Well, productivity acceleration is what helps them realize those three basic things. Makes their employer, a stronger competitor, increases employment security, right? More likelihood
2: of getting a bigger, better base and bonus increase. Worth mentioning there, Alistair, just uh, back to Ford for a minute. When Ford created, when he created this assembly line process that was just so efficient, he also created a cultural challenge, which was this was very monotonous work. And we know assembly line work that involves human hands still today very repetitive, right? Someone's doing the same thing a thousand times a day or whatever the number is. And that there's sometimes a challenge with, well, there is a challenge, I think, with creating, fulfilling, meaningful work in that environment. Yes. Ford, Ford tripled, tripled the amount of money that that he was paying people to work in his factory compared to the other factories. In yes. the sense that part of his workforce strategy, part of his talent strategy he was going to have to pay people more, right? He also knew that every penny mattered. So if he's going to pay people more, he was going to have to get a significant amount of throughput out of that. There was going to have to be some productivity gains. He got both. He got the best workers, right? That even though the work was monotonous, they were trading off monotony for triple pay. So they made a choice and he got the throughput that he needed in order to justify that kind of margin erosion, which was directly related to tripling the pay of the workers.
0: That's right, sure. And this focus on removing non-value-added activities, that's where we free up the creative capabilities and talents of everybody on the team, right? And I'm, I'm a firm believer that unutilized, non-utilized talent is probably the worst of the waste. To and that's me. a good example, yeah. Let's continue to seek out all the other <clears throat> wastes and just continue in this virtuous cycle of productivity
2: acceleration. And if we bring that into today's world for owners who may be thinking, I don't really care about Henry Ford, what does that have to do with me? It's a fascinating story. And I do think it's applicable. But if you think today, right, so we had just to sort of put a marker on it, we had jobs reports last week, I think it was last Thursday or Friday, 155,000 added last month, 155,000 jobs, which was down wages going up and we're at almost a historically low unemployment rate of 3.7% here in the United States. Almost every one of our clients right now, I would say every one of our clients right now, is struggling to get good talent and struggling to retain good talent. So if you see wages start to rise, that's an indication potentially of inflation, right? So we're starting to get... It's good news that people are being paid more but downstream, in terms of pricing strategies in the market, maybe not so good news. So you're starting to see early signs, as we would expect, that a low unemployment may drive higher pricing, ultimately, because you got to pay your people more, right? So how do you offset that? Well, you got to be more productive. you got to have the right kinds of processes in place. And we always tell our clients in tight labor markets where it's going to be difficult to get talent to do the jobs that you have on your organizational chart then you have to learn how to get more throughput out of your company. That's why we say this is such a key part of value acceleration. It's such a key part of creating a best-in-class organization that will be realized as one that
1: deserves more value than the next company down the chain, right? How do you create that You were mentioning in finding and attracting qualified talent, and we talked a little bit previously about knowledge transfer through an organization. Yeah. Can you touch on that a little bit?
2: Well, knowledge management is one of my sort of pet projects, I think. In most organizations, knowledge management is not done very well. Knowledge throughput is not great. And if you think about going back to the sort of great, biggest of the waste, as Alistair was saying, a non-utilized talent, giving people meaningful, fulfilling work, allowing them to expand their knowledge base is really, really important. You want smarter employees. You want a smarter workforce you want to be able to onboard people quickly when you bring them into the organization a lot of organizations are really slow at onboarding their people and getting them to a semblance at least of the expectation for full productivity and the company that i at one point ran integra realty resources which was a real estate evaluation consulting company we struggled to get the right people who could be trained into the organization quickly and brought up. And sometimes it would take at least a year, a year of carrying that capital to get someone to the point that they could produce a good real estate valuation. A lot of oversight during that period, right? So there was knowledge that we had in the organization, but it was not coming down in the organization and being systematized in a way so that it could be consistently shared. So there was a constriction, right? There was a constriction. We were also learning as we went along. We were getting better. We were getting data, right? Local data, national data, things that helped us do our jobs better. But we used to describe it as, hey, every valuation, there are insights that are buried in that valuation, ways of seeing it and doing it better. But those are not coming out of that valuation experience and process and being shared with the rest of the organization across the board. So that kind of knowledge throughput is what we're talking about. Measured again, onboarding, how well are you doing your job going forward. People will stay in companies where the culture is positive, where the culture is one of learning. People say it all the time. You look at the surveys of folks in terms of what am I expecting to get out of a company. Pay is not number one on the list, typically. Learning to do things that I don't already know how to do. Creating a foundation for me to see a career path right? Out of where I am to something else. The bridge between those two things is one experience, right? But I think it's all about getting smarter, learning to do things that you don't already know how to do that can propel you along that career path. So knowledge management is a real challenge for a lot of companies. And I think they're leaving tons of value on the table because they're not focusing on what knowledge is being generated out of our everyday experience that we can capture to make the whole organization better at what we do. John, so let me uh, dive in there
0: and bring <clears> us back great, great insight, bring knowledge management back in a very practical sense to productivity acceleration. And Bob, thank you for, for raising knowledge management. So there's a real fundamental way of understanding how to get more productivity. And that's by having stable operations that are standardized. And a piece of standardization is standard work. So everybody does the same thing the same way, irrespective of who you are. Now, we can have various levels of competence within standard work, right? I can do the standard work, but I need supervision, I can do the standard work without supervision. I'm capable of supervising and training others on standard work. So standard operations, a key element predicated on having stable operations, because if it's not stable, you can't standardize. But assuming you've got stability, knowledge of standard operations is critical. Now, to retain the talent and to attract the right talent, cross-training is a great way of making employees more valuable. And cross-training is very, very valuable where a constraint moves around within an operation. Because if I've got an operation right now which is constrained, but I only have three people capable of doing it and they're all doing two hours of overtime every day, I don't have to go, right, to get more productivity. But I've got others who work on upstream or downstream operations, which aren't currently the constraint, and they're trained on the constraint, just stop doing the non-constraining operation and add capacity to the constraining operation until you move it somewhere else, right? You rinse and repeat. But this is a very practical implementation of knowledge management within an organization. We want standard work, best known way, And one truism of standards, whatever lens you look at them through, is that standards should be regularly updated. Yes. Right. And who knows best how to
2: update standard? The people doing the work themselves. That's right. Yeah. It's let let me give you an example from one of our clients. So in response, this is a company that's in the construction space. And in response to an extraordinary event, they had to rapidly expand their workforce to respond. So they have about 800 full-time employees. They have about, I would say, 80 to 100 of those are in the management or professional class. And the rest are folks that work in the field, right? Doing the on-the-ground work. So they had to expand from 800 employees to 4,000 employees in a short period of time. I'm not talking about a year, I'm talking about months. So they had already, as part of the workforce strategy, that we had helped them design and we had helped them find and bring in professionals who really excelled in those areas. This was part of their value acceleration process. We already had processes for training and sharing knowledge and mentoring and getting them with the right people so that their onboarding could be accelerated. They can be moved right out into the field doing this work in crews, in crews. So the way that the work was done is it was modularized, right? So you would have a crew of maybe four or five people, each one of which contributed value-added steps to the process. And then they could get out there in the standard work and they could roll it just really, really quickly. They could get those things in place and then move on to the next standard work piece. So part of that training program had been initiated earlier and it it was scalable. We just had to do more of it in a short period of time. In addition, we had created a high-potential academy, Where literally on weekends, from their own volition, they were at high potentials were identified. They were put through an academy that developed their high potential. And they were ready to lead that initiative when it came. They were ready to create talent, not just attract talent, but create smarter talent out of that process. So it works. I know it works because I've seen it in action. And I think it's so important. That, by the way, is not a
1: manufacturing company. That's a service company, in a way, right? Before I get carried away, guys, and forget social media, people have been saying I've I give up. I need to talk to you guys. <laughs> uh, cool, huh?
2: how, how do they find? Uh, yeah, so social media, great way to get to us. We're active on LinkedIn. So SVA Value Accelerator is on LinkedIn. You can search for it. That's our company page. Search for me, Sean P. Hutchinson is in Patrick. Alistair Stewart is available there. So contact us anytime, connect with us anytime we put out content on our social media pages five days a week, five days a week aimed at owners who are interested in value acceleration, succession planning, anything that really is important in this particular space of transition readiness. If you connect with us, you're
1: going to see it in your feed five days a week. And then you guys also have something new coming up starting, I think, in the first quarter of 2019. That's right. So we're creating
2: an educational platform and an academy for business owners, not just baby boomers, but also early stage and mid-stage baby boomers, second generation of family businesses. There'll be a lot of learning resources there. And then we're introducing what we call mastermind groups, which are groups of 10 owners who go through a one-year program related to value acceleration, peer-driven, peer-supported, expert-facilitated. Those programs will begin in the first quarter of
1: 2019. So we've been at it for a little while. What did we miss besides a lot?
0: <laughs> one, uh, one, com- one comment I have, uh, Bob, and, and thank you for asking, what did we miss? As we think about productivity acceleration, like the wastes and recognizing that a foundational piece of realizing more productivity more quickly is standard work. I'd encourage every business owner and their management team to understand and follow through on leader standard work, right? Standard work is not just for a customer service person sitting at a computer with a headset on. It's not just for an operator at a machine on the floor. It's not just for a service guy in a truck in the field. Leader standard work models the kind of adherence to stand. I strongly encourage all business owners To not only staple themselves to an order, but to think about what leader standard work should he or she model on a daily basis
2: to set the cultural tone for the organization. And I would leave our audience with a bumper sticker thought. So 50 to 5,000. I think we've discussed this a little bit on previous podcasts. So 50 to 5,000 is a concept that you got a lot of people in the organization, potentially at a high level, who are doing what we call $50 an hour work. Right, $50 an hour work for executives or leader in the organization is non-value-added work that somebody else really ought to be doing. It could be putting out administrative fires. It could be doing stuff for a second time that should have been done well the first time. So do an audit on your organization. Do an audit. Start with your leadership team. Just take a month and have folks write down all the $50 an hour work that they're doing. If I ask an owner that question, how much of your day is taken up with $50 an hour work, I don't have to tell them what it is because they already know what it is. And the answer is usually 90 to 95% of my day is taken up with non-strategic activities that somebody really ought to be doing elsewhere. So that's frustrating. Stuff's getting to their desk that shouldn't be there. If we don't have time in the organization, space in the organization to reorient people towards $5,000 an hour work, $500 an hour work, whatever that step up looks like. If knowledge is not moving in the organization that supports that transition, then you're going to get stuck with too many people doing $50 an hour work or $10 an hour work, whatever the corollary is, and you will never climb out of that hole unless you explicitly make it clear at the leadership level that we are all going to move in that direction. And if we can eliminate the $10 an hour work altogether, because it's really non-value add and probably completely
1: unnecessary, let's do that. So, 50 to 5,000, keep it in mind. Guys, I really appreciate the insights and the time and the sharing of the knowledge. And for the listeners out there, the only mistake I think at this point you could make is if you have a question or you're interested, you need to call. And don't mess up, give them a call, see what we can do. <laughs>
0: okay.
1: So, hey, guys, really appreciate you taking the time. Our pleasure. Thank you
0: so much, Bob.